Is everybody content with their understanding of the fifth chapter? Should we move on? I was just going to say, Sridhar Swami says not to ask for mundane things even if we're in need. Or feel we're in need. Yes. Your point? <laughs> I'm just I just want to clarify. Yeah. Sure I heard it right. No. Even if we're suffering materially? It's on the lower plane. It's on the lower plane to make some demand. This environment is already working under Krishna's direction. Maya Dakshina Prakriti Suyate Sachara Charam. Everything's working under the Maya. Maya, we're all under Maya. And Maya is Krishna's external potency. There's no... If you really read the purports of Bhaktivedanta Swami, my spiritual master, you'll find that there's no great objection when we're in a dire situation to call out for Krishna. That's natural. That's a natural reaction for somebody. Who else are you going to call out for? You know, when the going gets rough, where are you going to turn? But as long as we are content with whatever the response is, that's the key. Somebody may come and pick us up or somebody may make us broken hearted and let us continue to suffer. That's Krishna's desire. So as long as we're not frustrated by the outcome, then yes, pray away. But we should make it just for an emergency. That kind of mundane request where we're put in great distress by some material circumstance. We certainly shouldn't make it a habit to crawl up, cry, out, cry out to the Supreme every time we dub our toe. <laughs> This environment, this material energy is so strong that, of course, there's going to be times when uh, when we're going to be put in, in difficult situations, yes. but uh, And yes, in those situations, who else is, is sufficient to give you shelter except Krishna? No one. So is it appropriate if we are wanting to serve Krishna to ask for his help in serving him? Well, there's a particular science to that. And the science is, you'll see in the prayers of the great sadhus and the acharyas, you'll see the way they approach Krishna in that regard, if they want to serve Krishna, is if you want this, then you'll give me all facility. And if you don't want it, then there'll be no facility. So if we're at that level of surrender, then that's the ideal. The neophyte, when we first come to devotional service, we come with the baggage of our conception of our worth and talent within this material energy. So the neophyte, he comes and he has his different talents in life. And we're thinking, well, who could do this service better than I? Or I have so much to offer God. I have so much to offer the devotees. He has some preconception like that. But it's like offering a lamp to the sun. 
I mean, the sun has unlimited potency to warm and to give illumination. And we are there with the lamp and say, oh, look, I have such a beautiful lamp I'm offering. Or, as they say, offering water to the Ganges. Well, there's no purer water on the planet than the water of the Ganges. It's, it, even when it's polluted and filthy, it, it purifies us spiritually. Because it's the best water you can give to anybody, then when you make an offering of water, there's no better water than the, the Ganges water. Well, sometimes we worship the Ganges herself because she gives so much. And when we are making an offering, what do we offer? Some Ganges water. Does she need any Ganges water? No, she is Ganges water personified. So we should have a proper conception of our situation. And truly what... Chaprasadad Bhagavat Prashado, Yashaprasadad Nakati Katopi. Without the mercy of the spiritual master, I can make no advancement. Truly, our offering is through the disciplic succession. So when we serve the Supreme, we don't we're not so so bold as to say, Well, let me serve God. Let me serve somebody who can do the service to God. Much better than I can. I can never do. And this goes on even up to the highest level where Radhadashim is the ideal of our conception of loving God. Radha is Krishna's topmost servitor and lover. And no one can do any service to her level of perfection. So, my spiritual master is serving that group. Vishwanath Chakravarti, that course, sings like that. Shiradakama Daviyorapara, right? We are trying to make some offering knowing that Radha is the topmost servitor. And that my spiritual master is in that group, serving that group, serving that highest conception. Let me serve him. And in that way, just as the knowledge of Krishna comes down, evam param praptam, through disciplic succession, our service also goes up through disciplic succession. Yes. Well, I was reminded or informed this this week that we, uh, when we're offering obeisances to our spiritual master, we're actually offering to the whole disciple, the whole guru parampara, like the whole chain of disciplic succession, all the spiritual masters of the spiritual masters. Of sure, I'm aware of that. Well, but I'm not trying to tell you. I yeah, no, I was just reminded yeah. of that. But the conception is we're serving our spiritual master. And he's serving his spiritual master. So yes, it's going through the chain of disciplic succession, but it's proper to have the, the perfect conception of, of that. And that is, my service is to my guru. Otherwise, we get into these convoluted misconceptions. It's possible where we can see that there's, especially in modern day 
practice of, uh, of devotional service, there's a group that thinks, well, I can go directly to Bhaktivedanta. No. He's already now, he's a Purva Acharya. He's a Praracharya. So, yes, when I'm paying my obeisances, I'm paying my obeisances to my spiritual master. And then he's offering. So, das, das, anu, das. Well, if you haven't been initiated, then you still are offering directly to Prabhupada, right? You're offering to that concept of Sri Guru. Prapa accepts service through his disciples. That's our understanding of the disciplic succession. So we're in the beginning, yes, somebody may come to an institution and the head of the institution may be naturally honored by everybody in the institution. And so when someone may come and may not be at a point of actually finding, finding the, the, the repository of their faith their bona fide guru. So yes, they can offer the head they can offer respect to the institutional head, yes, and it's certainly acceptable, but eventually they're expected to come to the platform of, of initiation where they, they directly serve their guru. So yes sir. Getting back to our anonymous uh, original question uh, that you addressed in the nine processes of devotional service, hearing, chanting, remembering, there is also offering prayers. Mm -hmm. Would not that also include in uh, in that conception of offering prayers, uh, supplications of that sort, you know, whether they're material or spiritual? Yes, that's fine. We can make all our supplications to Krishna. But let's make them all the the more they're spiritual, the better, because the material the material should be of, should gradually fall away. The anartha, the, any desire on this plane. I was thinking about that a little bit just recently. If you look at uh, and it's nothing that we can adopt, but if you even look back to the direct disciples of Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Goswami. In India, he had ashrams throughout India. And the students that came to stay in the ashrams, the standard was amazing. The standard was such that if, they, if you became ill in the ashram, you would not seek medical treatment. Now, we would think that's just... <laughs> yeah, it sounds a little Christian sciencey, yeah. But actually, that was the way he he said, if we're here, we are serving Krishna, let's be completely dependent on Krishna. This body is of no consequence whatsoever. And when we hear Bhagavad Gita, and we hear how Krishna is instructing Arjuna, and you're killing people for me, and it's difficult for us, especially in our neophyte position, to to comprehend the real depth of what is the mentality and the lifestyle of someone on the highest plane of, of, of spiritual existence. I mean, how 
just even to conceive of Lord Jesus Christ being willing to completely sacrifice his body. And we see throughout history different people do that. And, and uh, That's funny that you, you, you talk about that, you know, that, that it was discouraged to go and seek medical attention. Because in his, yeah. Yeah, because Prabhupada always uses the example, you know, if you're sick, you need a particular kind of medicine. Yeah. He was a chemist, he, you know. He, he was saying how um, we don't care about, we don't want strong bodies. You know, he said that you know, Bapu said, said, you know, strong bodies, then you just get puffed up, you just think, oh yes, just see how nice my body is. But he said, we don't, we don't care about having strong bodies. Just, you know, just whatever it takes for you to be able to do your devotional service. That's luckily it's a time gone by. <laughs> yeah, it's hard for it's hard for us to conceive village, of. You know, it's also village life. It's right. It's also an Indian culture and a spiritual culture in India. I mean, mm -hmm. these they have a different culture than a culture we could not follow. Right. But we notice throughout Bhagavatam, don't we, that at the end of life, that when people renounce and go to the forest to, at the end of life, to really give their full energy to, to spiritual upliftment. There's no doctors around. Nobody's cooking them food. They're completely dependent on nature. And whatever comes to them at that stage of life, that vanaprast or that sannyas, that complete renunciate, complete renunciate is that, completely renounced. Whatever the environment gives me, fine. If there's food, if there's shelter, Fine. If there's no food, no shelter, fine. My only shelter is Krishna. I think that's the same thing Christ was talking about, living off the fat of the land. Yeah. And he said something that before. So anyway, we have our modern, we have our, it's not, none of these things are anything that, that we would certainly recommend. We can't take on more than, than our culture as we've been brought up in a culture and we have a certain standard and Spiritual life doesn't mean that we abandon that standard. Arjuna was a warrior. He wasn't told to abandon, abandon his warrior standard and his warrior frame, was he? He was told to do his service according to his, to his, uh, na uh, his nature. So similarly, we have a nature. We've come into this culture. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't have at least a theoretical conception of the highest ideal of complete and total surrender. Even in this day and age, uh, getting back to the, I mean, just touching on that again, the idea that uh, a, a spirit, a, a, a so-called material prayer could, could be to facilitate the spiritual. If Krishna is in the center, it's fine. That's right. We need to tread, we need right. to lead carefully under good guidance if right. we're, let me win the lottery. Well, no, we're not supposed to, you know. No. <laughs> <laughs> might be nice. Krishna's no poor man. Even though you could say you can build a bigger ashram. Yeah, is that really what we want? That's how you get the <laughs> <laughs> I can see, I can see. Yeah. Let us, let us just say we need to be careful in that regard. After my spiritual master left, I mean, the Bhaktivedanta Swami left. I mean, we have an inst a huge institution controlling multi-millions of dollars. 
but we need to make sure that the spiritual standard is there also. Because when we're, when we're so much involved in dollars and cents, there's every chance that we'll be overtaken by those dollars and cents. Just like Jod Barat was overtaken by what? Not dollars and cents, by a little deer. This energy is here to grab us at every minute. We have to keep, as I said, our eye on the ball at every stage, huh? <laughs> Karma yoga. Everybody's content. We got a pretty good grasp of that. Should we move on to the sixth chapter? Which is dhyana yoga. Meaning coming to the stage of working. Working with our physical was the last chapter, right? Working for Krishna. Mm-hmm. Uh, And that chapter ending with what? Bhaktaram. Yes. If we're going to work, if we're going to, if we are going to be here in this world, Bhaktaram yajna tapasab sarva loka maheshwaram. Let us let the culmination of our working come to the up to this standard. That no matter what, all of our work is for the ultimate beneficiary, that is Krishna. Bhaktaram. Bhaktaram. Yajna. Our sacrifices. Our physical sacrifices. Bhaktaram yajna tapasam. Our austerities, our penances, our religious practice. Sarva loka maheshwaram. Why? Because just what we were talking about. It's all coming from Him. He's the sun. He's providing all the energy. We're here offering a little flame. Please see me. Look, I'm trying to love. Here, I'm trying to give some water. Here, eat. I'm trying to cook something you like. Of course, Rod is the best cook, but maybe I can cook something that that she's told me how to make through the disciplic succession. No matter. That's the way we're looking. Everything's going up ultimately. Radha Dasham. Sarvaloka Maheshwaram, because he is the proprietor of everything. He's the owner, he's the proprietor, he's the provider. This is all his energy. All the energy I have that I think I'm giving to Krishna, who's giving me the energy? Krishna. All of it. The source, the product, the offering, Every, the oblations, the fire, Krishna says he's all these things, doesn't he, later in Bhagavad Gita. Right. I'm all this. Right. Yes. I've often <clears throat> thought of it like a, a child who um, wants to buy their mother or father a birthday present. You know, they don't have any money, so they go to the mother to get the money to go and buy her <laughs> a birthday present. But And it's and it, and they go buy something that the mother doesn't even like, but even though she paid for it, and even though she wouldn't have bought that herself, you know, it's the loving affection that the child wanted to give something to the mother that pleases the mother. Yeah. Really, all the mother wants love is love. Yeah. And really, that's the Raj conception. That's the highest conception. We want to come to the stage of love. Which is what? 
actually devoid of knowledge and opulence. We want to forget God's God. We just want to love Him. He's the sweetest thing around. He's the... I mean, that's the conception of the, of the residents of Goloka Rindavan. Their conception is, I, I, I love Him as a child, as a friend. It's a supreme master. You know, some service is there. Or is the supreme lover, lover. I don't care who he is. I don't care what he does. I don't care the nature of his everything. I don't care for all of his opulences, which are everything, everything's coming from him. But the Braj conception is, let me leave all that behind and come to the platform of Raganuga Bhakti where it's just a heartfelt love. Suridam Sarva Bhutanam That in any circumstance, no matter what our work is, no matter what our karma yoga is, this chapter we just finished is karma yoga. Work works for the Supreme. Why? Because who could be more more our interested heart than Krishna? Even more than our, we have our own interested heart. santam Relief from all material pains. If we can just come to this conception when it comes to our karma, then no material suffering whatsoever. We don't have to ask for anything then, do we? We don't have to say. Because why? Because we're not attached to this body. This body is nothing but a source of misery and we see it for what it is. And whether it's young and strong or old and weak, still there's no pleasure through the senses that, that can even hold up a candle to the pleasures of spiritual life. None of it. None of the pleasures. None of the good eating. None of the good seeing. None of the good hearing. None of the good feeling. No way that we can gratify ourselves as much as Krishna can gratify us in love. Nothing on this plane. Nothing on this sensual plane. If we can come to that understanding, then that's there. We have a firm foothold in our spiritual progress. So, this whole chapter of yoga coming up to this stage of understanding working for Krishna. Now, this next chapter, let's... Yoga, this, is, this book is about yoga, isn't it? And we're talking about working in yoga. That's working so that we can yoke up with the Supreme Lord. Now let's go on to the sixth chapter and, and what? How we can think up to the Supreme Lord. Right, meditation. The Supreme Personality of Godhead said, this is the first verse of the sixth chapter, one who is unattached to the fruits of his work and who works as he is obliged is in the renounced order of life. And he is the true mystic, not he who lights no fire, 
and performs no duty. So, beginning this chapter, he's kind of like reinforcing the instruction from last chapter, right? If you can work in this world according to your nature and still not be attached, that's a true renunciant. That's the best sannyasi. And that's what the last chapter's theme was. Sannyas. Sacrifice. So many different sacrifices were there. What is called renunciation, you should know to be the same as yoga. Or linking oneself with the Supreme. O son of Pandu. For one can never become a yogi unless he renounces the desire for sense gratification. And what? Can we do that? How can, is it possible to give up sense gratification? Not really. No. What's Krishna say in this second chapter, 59th verse? What's that verse? Like controlling the wind. Visaya vinivartante niharashyadehinam. Unless there's a higher taste, you still got to eat. Everybody's looking for pleasure. Everybody's got to feed themselves. You're not going to give up lower foodstuffs unless somebody offers you something higher. As we are a pleasure-seeking entity. Why? Because Krishna is the supreme pleasure-seeking entity. And we're his little particle. What is that verse? 259. Because it's so important to have this to understanding. We have to see... Well, it's interesting he says he renounces the desire for sense gratification. Yes. I'm a little picky here. Yeah, no, the desire. Sense gratification is going to be... As long as you're in the body, the senses are going to be... Even the greatest yogi sitting in the woods is still feeling the light feeling the breeze on his body. He's breathing. Yeah, breath is coming and going, food is coming, water is coming. The senses have to experience. But, what? It's just to keep the body alive. Why? Because in this body, what? I can use my intelligence to what? To be Krishna conscious, to advance spiritually. Senses are going to be satisfied. Visayaveni vartante niraharasya dehinam rasavarjam rasopyasya Param The embodied soul may be restricted from sense enjoyment through though the taste for sense objects remains. Still there. But ceasing such engagements by experiencing a higher taste, he is fixed in consciousness. So then the question comes. To the aspiring spiritualist, well, where do I find that higher taste? And how many religions are there in the face of the planet? And they're all standing at their pulpits and they're all saying, we got the real thing. We're, this, is, this is it. Our synagogue, our church, our mosque, our, our yoga studio. We're all saying we. this is the highest conception. We are the oneness blessings people. Or we're this. I mean, we all have a conception. There's so many conceptions of where you can get that higher taste. 
It's a smorgasbord. Is that the right word? Yes. Huh? Yes. Well, how do I know where to go? How do we make a distinction? How do we determine what where how do we discriminate between this one and that one? We enter the maze. Mm. Well, we have to do, we have to follow to some extent the only thing that's going to take us to any one of those different items on the buffet line of spiritual life in this world, the only thing that's going to attract us is what? A little faith. Our faith is going to be drawn one way or another based on what? Based on the influence that we're under in the modes of material nature. So we're not even free, that free, when it comes to our spiritual path. I would just like to say something. Uh, referring to yoga or the yoga studio, nobody is teaching <laughs> in this country the Ashtanga or the you know the royal path or that you know the eight limbs nobody's teaching it it is purely for sense gratification yeah even though it's you know but you will see the propaganda is there is there not a, a, still there's a they, big propaganda by the they people don't, they don't even pretend that it's about looking for something higher I mean I have some to, of them do not well, really. my yoga teacher that I started doing class with, uh, she's like living life more fully, living life, you know, something like so. Some there's some ideals, there's some quasi-spiritual ideals. Yeah. Yes, well, it's pretty much what you get. What can you get? What can you get from yoga? Mm -hmm. Not what can you give. And it's really not, and, and most of it's not really about any kind of self-realization as it was originally. Well, it's all about it's all about what can you get exactly. I mean, not even just the yoga, like all of it, even the religion. Yeah, you know, the churches, the temples, yeah. the synagogues. Yeah. Yeah. Have any of us come to the practice of Krishna consciousness without wanting, having a desire to attain the highest level? What we could get, but what in coming to this concept, this Krishna conception. Guru says, whoa, wait off. That's not, that's not what this is about at all. This is about developing your heart to come to an appreciation of love. Love in and of itself is so fulfilling, there doesn't have to be any other desire there. If you can purify your consciousness, sheto darpanam arjanam bhavamaha devagni nirvapanam then the fire of material existence will itself dissipate when we purify our consciousness and let... All I can think of is a song by uh, Neil Diamond for the little E.T. guy. Let your heart so shine through. <laughs> I mean, really, isn't that what this Krishna conception is? We want everything to fall away as far as some misconception and let, let us learn what is truly the platform of Rag. Ragmarg, loving attraction between the lover and the beloved. We want to come to that, to that appreciation. Well, I... I get that. I was just saying you know, yeah. that 
you know, this no, there's, there's so many, no, I'm not, I'm, so many misconceptions. We have to have a high taste. For one who is a neophyte in the Eightfold Yoga System, work is said to be the means. So we begin by working with... And for the neophyte, work is the means. And for one who is already elevated in yoga, cessation of all material activities is said to be the means. But cessation of all material activities may still be work. Renunciation for someone who's working for the Supreme could be work. Their renunciation could be doing their work. A person is said to be elevated in yoga when, having renounced all material desires, he neither acts for sense gratification nor engages in fruitive activities. Fruitive activities. That doesn't mean any activity, does it? It means he doesn't engage in fruit where he wants a fruit out of his work. But he still works. When we had our class on Sunday, this whole concept of religion being a level of piety is also in and of itself, it can be misleading for us. Well, our religion's better than your religion because we have the highest level of piety. Piety? That's okay. It's nice to be truthful, honest, clean. I mean, we, we do have a, a, a great appreciation for those things, do we not? In spiritual life, they're automatically there, but they're not our objective. They're byproducts we're still trying to come to this proper understanding that even in our religious practice, you'll not find anybody practicing to a higher standard of morality than those advanced devotees of Krishna. They have the highest standards, but the nice thing about their preaching, they never beat you over the head with the piety because the piety is really not the purpose. But they're the most pious. Aren't they? That's not what I meant. They're the most renowned. But it's natural. It's a natural byproduct of the purification of the heart. It's not like they have, we have to strive as devotees to do this and that. We, strive, we cover four basic things. Any real religion has four true standards upon which it builds itself. Cleanliness, truthfulness, austerity, and mercy. Don't care what religious practice and what nomenclature you give the religion, in what section of the world, in what tradition, in what line, a true religion will have these standards. Truthfulness, cleanliness, austerity, and mercy. Those Inside and out, all of them. Truthfulness inside, being true to yourself, your true self, and being outside with the environment. Austerity, being austere in that we don't let our senses run wild. Any religion has that standard. Now they draw up different laws and different law books as far as what that is, don't they? Well, this is really what it means to be austere. Uh, we don't eat this food on Friday, or we don't, or we don't eat grains on a codicil. 
We also have a standard. I mean, we every religion has a practice to remind us don't be over a don't be overtaken by your senses. And inside, what is our austerity? Don't be overtaken by the dictates of the mind. Cleanliness inside and out, austerity, truthfulness, mercy. And mercy has to extend inside in inward also. Sometimes we get so wrapped up in our spiritual life, we don't give ourselves a break. I'm sorry. I'm reminded of uh, certain religious traditions where they they wear uh, straps on their legs that are constantly pricking them with the, or they're slapping themselves in the back with a whip. Austere. What kind of? Krishna doesn't approve of that in Bhagavad Gita. That austerity, which inflicts physical pain on the body is in the mode of ignorance, he says. He'll say this later in Bhagavad Gita. This is not austerity. It's austerity for people that are really dumb. (laughs) Mode of ignorance. They do that. They think that's austere. Ah, Let me beat my body because I can't control my senses. Why don't you just learn how to control your senses? Just do it the easy way. So, truthfulness, cleanliness, austerity, mercy. What's it boiled down to us in this age? What do we have to do to really get a grasp of these basic principles? No meat eating. No illicit sex. No gambling and no intoxication. If you can keep those things at bay, you got this truthfulness, cleanliness, austerity, and mercy because they're direct correlation between those things. I won't go into that now. But. So in Kali Yuga, we're supposed to be, you know, the four, the four legs on which the cow stands. So truthfulness is the last one that stands. In Kali Yuga, that's Kali Yuga. there's a little truthfulness left. But that'll be gone by the end. It's gone fast, isn't it? So do all religions... I mean, you know, because we can look at pretty much any religion and from our point of view, you know, mercy is gone, you know, because they're, they're you know, everyone's eating meat, so there's no mercy. Um, did they originally start with, you know, you're saying all religions have these four things. Like, I don't, I don't see that in most religions. Well, that's because we can only see back as far as our current history. Yeah, it's it's difficult, unless we, unless we bring out the scriptures and we're allowed a vision into the earlier ages of men, it's difficult for us to even grasp, you know, what we can look back two or three thousand years and we, I think modern historians look back what? I don't know, when was the Neanderthals, you know, 10,000, 20,000 years ago? You know, they have a concept that man came from monkeys that came from, you know, they slithered up and gradually came up and here we are at the human form of life evolved, but that's not at all the concept of, uh, of the Veda. The Veda gives us an idea that it, that actually everything starts out real good in such a yuga. You live for a hundred thousand years in one body. It gives you a long time to perfect yourself. Yes. Yes, yes. Satya, Treta, Dwarpa, and Kali. Duration of life decreases. These four principles decrease age by age. 
until now, what? We're hanging on by a thread of truthfulness that that's pretty much gone. But Krishna is always there with his, always sending his devotees to, to, uh, to set things right. One must deliver himself with his mind. And this is this chapter. Now we're, we're beyond the working senses. Karmendrias, the karmendrias, the karma. We're working with our senses. Karmendrias. So now let's talk about the controlling force of those senses. Verse 5, one must deliver himself with the help of his mind and not degrade himself. The mind is the friend of the conditioned soul and what? His enemy as well. Wow, we live with somebody that's a friend and an enemy. <laughs> all the time. I see that all the time in my mind. Sometimes it's working in my best interest, and the other time it's like, come on, you don't want to do that. You don't have to do that. You don't like that person. You can be envious. You can be jealous. You can be lustful. You can be greedy. You deserve it, yeah. It's not greed. Have it your way. I want to read you a verse from, uh, I just read this morning. Oh, you're doing it? Can I take it? You can always say something, you know. Um, it reminds me of a song Trabari. He uses the, the saying, to use the mind to soften the heart. So it's kind of like, like that also. With the help of the mind. The help of the mind, you use the mind to soften the heart. Because the mind is hard. Alright, this is a verse, this is a list. This is a laundry list of what material life's about. This is again from the fifth, the fifth, uh, canto of Srimad Bhagavatam. And now, we've actually, there's been a narration between as we mentioned on Sunday, there's been a narration uh, by Bharat Maharaj to the king, uh, Rahugana, and that dialogue has ended, and now the dialogue goes back to Sukadev, who is narrating the story to Maharaj Parikshit. And Sukadev Goswami relates this verse in regards to the whole incident and specifically in regards to what... This is what often happens, as we touched upon on Sunday. What often happens in spiritual dialogue is the student basically turns to the teacher and says, that sounds well and good. Could you break it down in a way I can understand it? Because I know that what you're saying sounds good, it sounds like, but, you know, I'm just like a, I'm, I'm a materialist. I can't, all these flowery words are there, but could you make it, put it in my language, will you? So, Maharaj Parikshit requests Sukadev Goswami after hearing of the instructions that, relate, that he repeated that had been given by Judd Bharat to King Rahugana regarding the 
he he made an analogy of the material life being like a jungle. And we're kind of like monkeys. Because in this jungle of material life, our primary driving force is sexual attraction, which is like this the sex and the monkey is is really into that taste of sex life. So it's jumping from tree to tree and they have a, like a whole harem of little monkey yets that they go out with, you know. So Yeah, they're doing their little monkey yet dances, you know. Okay. So this is a nice verse. Spoken by Maharaj uh, by Sukadeva Goswami to Maharaj Pariksit in trying to break down this. Because the whole analogy was given of the jungle. And it, of course, when you're reading this part of the Bhagavatam, you have the purports of Bhaktivedanta Swami who's explaining every verse. But if you really take the purports away and just listen to the verse, it just sounds like a nice story of people living in the jungle and having a good time. If you don't know what all the different analogies are to see how you're forced to, to live in caves, you're forced to eat whatever's there, you're forced to, to cohabitate with people that are really there simply. When you turn your back on them, they'll pounce on you and eat you. The ferocious animals in the forest. In this materialistic life, there are many difficulties as I have just mentioned. And all of these are insurmountable. In addition, there are difficulties arising from so-called happiness, distress, attachment, hate, fear, false prestige, illusion, madness, lamentation, bewilderment, greed, envy, enmity, insult, hunger, thirst, tribulation, disease, birth, old age, and death. All these combine together to give the materialistic conditioned soul nothing but misery. What a laundry list, of, uh, if you think of it. I mean, I'm sure Maharaj Pariksit was like, wow, did I really have to ask? Yeah. <laughs> when you break it down that way, it's like, whoa, wow, this is my life. The life of Riley. Oh, my illusion, madness, lamentation, bewilderment, greed, envy, enmity, insult, hunger, thirst, tribulation, disease, birth, old age, and death. Wow, when you when you look at it that way, it's like, what the hell am I doing here? <laughs> Due to this foolishness, this is Prabhupada's purport, all these materialists are described in Bhagavad Gita as Naradamas. What's that verse? I know what it means. Nara, yes. A Dharma. Naradamas, Adharma. Uh, uh, Nara, uh, Nara, human. Dharma is what? Dharma is proper activity. The two words together, na adharma, Naradharma. It's a get. They live against the principles of a conscientious lifestyle, which is acting according to Dharma. Having proper relationships, being properly situated in the environment. Naradama. 
They have attained the human form in order to get released from material bondage, but instead of doing so, now that in itself is, is quite quite a statement. Could you read that again? We've come to the human form of life. How many living entities, if you look just in this city, of all the living entities here, what percentage are human beings? How many little insects and bugs and trees and, you know, blades of grass and flowers and plants and all these different species of living entities? What's the percentage in this city that are human? The sages, they're saying, come on, you've come, you've made it this far. You've come all the way to the stage of a human being. You have free will. The tree can't even go anywhere. And if a rainstorm comes, it has no shelter. But it is a living thing. It is living. It is breathing. It is breathing in its own way. It is eating through its roots. So living entities are there in all these different species of life, both moving and non-moving. And we've come all the way to the human form. They attain the human form in order to get released from material bondage. That's the only reason for this human form of life. Sense enjoyment, you can have that at a much higher standard in all the other lower bodies. You can eat without re you you first of all in the lower forms of life without the hu before human life there's no reaction there's no bad reaction they're like little babies they have no consciousness to discriminate between right and wrong so everything's right for them they don't get bad karma they got the bad karma to fall into that platform and now they're coming to the human form. So how, how do we explain, because I, I understand this, but how do we explain, you know, here's one dog that, you know, has this wonderful loving home where he gets great everything. <laughs> and, you know, and then there's another dog who's beaten and, you know, left out in the cold to starve. Mm -hmm. You know, so there's no karma, but why do these living entities have these different circumstances? Well, we come at you if if you come to the level of, of proper discrimination, and you don't use your discrimination In properly. Yes, mm -hmm. then there's despite what everyone says, beside despite this quote quote the law of evolution that we think you can't go down, you go up and that you're stuck. No. So similarly, as you conduct yourself. In this human form of life, if you if you don't act like a human being, naturally you there's every possibility you will fall back into the animal species. And so you would then be based on the modes and your activity in that in that human form, then the level of abuse. I mean. So when we see an animal that's you know that's suffering, mm -hmm. we can pretty much understand, understand that he was a dog kicking. I mean, come on, you can see the way some people treat their animals. Well, huh? Yeah, but 
So there's a difference there. So all these cows being led to slaughter are mm -hmm. people that have been eating cows that were led to slaughter. Yeah, and you don't want to know that karmic law, but I'll tell you anyway. What about the homeless? See, all this, all this karma is coming and going. It's coming and going in every species of life. We're coming up and down. We're going up, we're coming down, and there's always a chance we even fall below the human form. So much so that, unfortunately for somebody that, that's, that's, that's taking advantage of the cow for, for food, it's, the karma is, is phenomenal. It's, 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 the Vedas give us indication that for every hair on the body of that animal... That's a body. Wow. That's why we chant Hare Krishna. Yeah. I grew up. I grew up in a in a family that that ate cow. So, yeah, I need to chant a lot of Hare Krishna. Luckily, Krishna can clean cleanse that away. Oh, you're talking about the person who eats the meat or whatever. Yes. Well, and then it goes. It's not just the person that eats it. Anyway, this stuff well, is I just. I thought you meant the cow getting slaughtered. Yeah. Well, the cow getting slaughtered is is one of his verse. Anyway, it's it's very it's very scary stuff. Karma. Karma is not you know it's not like. No, it's it's an elu It's it, the one good thing is for the spirit soul. Krishna's already explained to us in the beginning of Bhagavad Gita, we're not the body. We're not any of the different bodies. So, well, that's a relief right there. But I'll tell you one thing, that when I'm sleeping and I'm having a nightmare, I'm thinking that I'm really suffering. And similarly, when we are in the nightmare of material existence, even though the fact of the matter is we're spirit and this is an illusory temporary thing doesn't mean it doesn't exist we don't we don't buy into that consciousness this world is real but its level of reality and the level of that influence upon us is based upon our level of spiritual awareness and the more spiritually aware we are the less influence this environment will have upon us. So much so that when devotees truly and fully purify themselves, what's Krishna said? What's he just said? We just read it. What? There's no suffering. There's no material suffering for someone who's situated in transcendental consciousness, even though he's within a material body. Let us purify our consciousness to that level. Are some of the bodies that um, you know that are you know some of the bodies that are embodied here in this material plane are they from other planets or do they, you know what I'm saying like for say like a you know a dog that's you know kicked and whatever you know beaten and starved can that be from there's 14 divisions of planetary systems. The Vedas give us that indication. And Earth is situated in the center, passionate planet. There's, there's six, seven planets below. And, uh, you know, six planets above. So... One have life on another planet and then come to this 
Yeah. You got, I mean, you're always going up and down, more pious than the, the more level, the higher, higher piety is there in the heavenly planets where the demigods reside, where they live for lifetimes that to us are, are, are immortal. Tens and hundreds of thousands of years. I mean, it's, it's unimaginable to us. They have no material pains the way we know pain. They have mental anguish. Yes. Eventually they have to give up their position even in the heavenly planets. And generally, it's like, it's, it's, it's explained in the, in the Shastra, it's like having a huge bank account. So when you spend all the money in your bank account, when all the piety that you acquired to get you to that nice heavenly atmosphere is expended through enjoyment on that plane, well, if you can't pay the taxes on the mansion, you're going to have to rent a house where the common people live. huh? So, we acquire piety and our piety allows us to advance materially to higher levels of what people call heaven. But we're not interested in any of that. We're not interested in going to heaven. What's heaven? It's a still birth and death. Abrahma bhuvana loka. Abrahma. From the highest planet in the material world down to the lowest. Krishna says all of them are places of misery. Why? Because repeated birth and death take place. So it doesn't matter. The highest or the lowest sufferings there. For he who has conquered the mind, the mind is the best of friend. And for he has failed to do so, the mind will remain the greatest enemy. Boy, Krishna repeats it, right? The fifth verse and the sixth verse. He says it twice, the same thing. Seventh verse, for one who has conquered the mind, the super soul is already reached, for he has attained tranquility. To such a man, happiness and distress, heat and cold, honor and dishonor are all the same. Any other questions, comments? Thank you so much.